not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. So that's where I share about my life, and I hold space here on the Bubble Hour for you to share your stories from your life. My guest today is Wanja, who joins me with much celebration after 40 minutes of technical <laughs> trauma and difficulties trying to get ourselves recording, but we did it. It's working and Wanja is here. Hi, Wanja. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you. It is indeed the Bubble Hour and I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you. We've been writing back and forth for a while now. And as you said in one email, June sounded so far away when we first started communicating in in the uh, early spring. But now here it is and we're finally getting to talk. So I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Thank you for your service and being here. And please tell us your story. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. Um, actually, I was I was reflecting back when we started uh, communicating. It was prior to the global pandemic, and um, so much has changed. And it just seems like it was a long time ago when all that started. Um, so my name is Wanja, and I just celebrated my forty sixth birthday. I'm actually still celebrating as we speak because I don't believe in one day of a celebration. Um, I live in Atlanta and in the Atlanta area, and um, I have two teenage daughters, and I stress teenage daughters, uh, and I'm a granddaughter. Um, I'm a daughter. Um, I have one living parent. I'm a sister. I'm also my daughter's mother. I'm a good friend. That's what they tell me. Just a fellow traveler. Um, you know, I love being mentored. I love being mentoring. I'm actually coachable today. So um, I'm a living vessel who said yes to uh, living at my purpose. Um, I'm excited to be here, Jean, and I'll tell you a little background about myself. And one of the major things I love doing is listening to people, and I've loved listening and enjoyed listening to you. Um, I also like reading. You'll probably understand a little better where that came from. I love, love, love writing. So I connect with you at that level as well. I love anything outdoors. You know, those are some of my hobbies. Like I can, I can live outside in a tent if I could, um, except where I live, there's so many um, unwelcome uh, pets, mosquitoes, spiders. So I don't think I want to live outside. I love hiking, music. Um, I like gardening. My 15-year-old and I uh, are starting a chicken coop. That's new for me. I'm in the process of doing that. Um, and I'm a huge, huge intuitive person and a big advocator. Um, and that is a little bit about who I am. Um, and I don't like to use uh, titles uh, to describe myself because I didn't come into this world with titles. But for work, what I do is I help individuals face the reality of their trauma, their compulsive behavior and or addiction, and really take control of their life back. And that's based on my own philosophy. Um where did that come from? Where did that philosophy come from? I'll tell you a little bit about my background. Um, and I, for the sake of this audience, I'm going to uh, kind of focus a little bit of my imperfect human uh, in recovery. My drug of choice or no choice, like I like to call it, uh, toward the end, there was no choice for me. Um, you know, it was alcohol and it still is alcohol if I pick up a, a drink. But today I... Um, I don't have to, you know, that's what I was told when I first started my recovery. And I honestly did not believe it. Um, I've remained sober since August the 1st, 2015. Um, I don't take, you know, any pride for that date. Uh, but what I do um, is realize that I don't have to, like mentioned, pick up a drink today, A and B, um, that this is for me 
one second at a time, one moment at a time. Um, and as I sit here, I'm not under the influence of any mind-altering substance. And that is a miracle. Um, I want to focus a little bit about where, you know, where I grew up and how I grew up and um, my background. So I'm a child of the universe. That's what I like to call myself. I'm multicultured. Um, I'm a first-generation immigrant. I was born in Kenya. I'm a descendant of two parents who loved each other, who actually came from around the same area, spoke the same language. Um, so I speak uh, multiple languages because of that. My dad would constantly insist that we only spoke English in the house, and my mom would, behind the scene, make sure we spoke other languages. And uh, I'm actually grateful that she did that. Um, and for the most part, um, I grew up in a very open-minded background, especially being that I was in Africa. Uh, my dad was a world traveler. And I remember very young when I started having these fantasies of just traveling the world because he would travel all over the world and he'd come back and he had this map and he would check off on the map where he's been. And and um, he's a, he was an educator. He passed away. Uh, over 20 years ago now. I can't believe it. Um, and I am grateful um, to be sitting here in that reflection because I haven't actually had a chance to reflect in quite a while. Um, I have three brothers, two older brothers and one younger brother. I spent majority of my childhood, especially being the only girl, not knowing how to share. Um, that was actually an integral part of my background. Um, you know, categorize us as what people would call middle class. Um, my youngest brother is six years younger than I am. Um, and, you know, my, my mom used to spend so much time um, when he was little with him. And I remember that's the first time I remember what selfishness felt like because I felt like he was taking my mother away from me. And this was my own brother. But I remember having that thought, even that young. Um both my parents were educators and promoted education as the way to unlock a bright and successful future. Um, so in education was the way, especially the African culture, that's how they gifted you, was like an investment investment in you. Uh, they were both very authoritarian. You know, it was their way. Um, you know, that's the way they, they were raised. That's the way they raised us. Uh, and of course, if you brought my brothers here, they'll probably tell a different story, but this is you know, Jean's holding space for me to tell my story. And this is my view um, of the background. No part of this uh, ended up causing me the future that I ended up having, especially under the influence of a substance. But I like to reflect back um, from especially a bird's eye view like I am today. They really, truly did the best that they could with what they had at the time. I did experience some childhood trauma. Um, it was actually initially through uh, molestation. And I didn't like to call it that for a long time. Um, and I still, you know, sometimes struggle with that, especially if my mother was to hear this. You know, we grew up in Africa. We There's certain things we don't talk about. And um, But to grow, I've learned that this is part of, of my story, but I don't have to be a victim to my past. Um, uh, being a Christian, uh, I was raised Christian, and I also ended up in a Christian, actually Catholic. I wasn't raised Catholic, but I ended up in a Catholic boarding school at a very young age. I believe I was about nine years old. Um, and I remember for me that contributed to thoughts of abandonment. I know that, you know, intellectually I understood why my parents were um, literally like saying this is the best thing for you because they traveled a lot. They were moved around a lot. Um, my, my dad was going through some promotion opportunities with his career, which caused him to move quite a bit and travel quite a bit. And there were that, that was their way of giving me stability. But as a nine-year-old, I really didn't understand that. And that was the first time between the molestation that was happening in secret whenever I visited home um, to the, you know, spending most of my time not under the care of home, but under the care of nuns who were very, very strict. I remember finding a way to go in, inward. I spent a lot of time with me in my head. Um, you know, alcohol was not shunned around. You know, my it wasn't something, it wasn't a subject that was brought up. Um, it was used for entertainment, but that was about it. You know, we 
we spent, when I was home, uh, as I mentioned, I was in boarding school at a young age. And when I was home, which was typically every three months, I'd be home for about three weeks. That's that's the British um, educational system. Kenya was colonized by the British. And that's typically uh, when I would be home. But what I found myself doing is finding ways to manipulate so I can be home sooner. Um, and, you know, I remember at a very young age, realizing um, how to get my parents' attention was something to do with my health. So I would put Vicks Vicks VaporUp in my eyes and they would turn super red. I would go to the eye doctor and the eye doctor would say, I don't see what's wrong because of course I've spent so much time making sure I don't smell like the Vicks and I would manipulate my parents to take me home. So I started learning how to manipulate them, how to have people feel sorry for me, but I wasn't very vocal about my feelings. Um, and I was extremely afraid um, as a child. And and I remember I always felt like I didn't fit in. Um, I have memories of having this really kinky, thick hair. And um, it was difficult for me to manage it because when I was in boarding school, they had rules like you couldn't keep your hair braided. And so because I couldn't keep my hair braided, I needed to actually like do my hair every day. And I was a tomboy. I grew up with brothers. I grew up around brothers. Um, my mom would try doing my hair. I'd cry. And so I found my parents decided the solution in that moment was to cut my hair. Well, I was a late bloomer. Um, so I didn't have, you know, any physical uh, attributes until later that I was a girl. And then here I was with no hair. Um, and so I, not only did I internally not feel like I fit in, but externally in an all-girl boarding school, um, I definitely did not fit in. And I felt constantly lost and confused. Um, and that I remember the first memory of seeking and searching for security uh, in people, places, and things was due to that abandonment that I started feeling. Of course, back then I could not um, articulate it to the level that I'm articulating it today. Um, you know, being made fun of by others. But I also have good memories. I also have um, learning to be okay in that silence. Although it was uncomfortable for me, I, I didn't have that heart to retaliate. I wasn't, you know, I didn't bully um, back as well. So um, I was highly sensitive and extremely intuitive. And I remember it's almost like I could hear voices. It sounds weird, but it's almost like if I walked into a room, I could. I was hearing how people were feeling or what they were thinking. And later in life, I started finding ways to numb those. But when I was younger, I didn't have a way to numb that. And I was, uh, I found out later that I'm actually very empathetic. Like I have um, a lot of empathy. Um, uh, what else do I want to highlight? Um, you know, I was very strong in my self-will, um, you know, I remember alcohol wasn't a part of me, but I later learned that there is something called alcoholism. And although I wasn't drinking the alcohol, I had what's called the isms. Um, and, you know, I remember back then it just didn't make sense why I had, you know, certain ways I did things and why I didn't feel like I fit in. But later I found out um that I had this self-will and and it was, it's actually good in some essences, um, but it did not serve me well when it came to, to alcohol. Um, I was very strong-willed. You know, I, I, I begged, begged, begged my parents who, as mentioned, I'm the only girl. They both had a lot of siblings. We were close as a family, at least as close as, um, as you could be. We spent, you know, we ate dinner together every night when, when my parents were home, um, when my dad wasn't traveling, when he was traveling, we still ate dinner together every night. There was no eating food in your room. You sat together, you talked, um, and, and keep in mind, this is when I was home. Later in high school, I, I actually lived at home with my parents and went to what they term as a day school. Um, and so I'd take every morning, I would um, get up really early uh, and and spend um, the car ride with my dad. He would drop me off to school and he's the one who picked me up from school. So he and I got really, really close. Um and I remember that's when I started seeing a little bit of dysfunction. Um, I didn't have that name because because my mom didn't understand. My mom is very, very talkative, but she did not initially understand my relationship uh, with my dad because he was very 
openly talking to me, but he didn't see much um, in most other essences. And and my brothers would, um, I smile thinking about it now, they would tell me, oh, dad will get you that. So you need to tell him to get this and this, things I didn't even need, you know, as a girl, but get them for us. And so I learned that if I asked my dad for anything, um, that he would give it to me. And he always said, I would rather be the one who gives it to you than you find a man that gave it to you. He taught me independence was so, so important. Um, I, I begged and begged and pleaded and, um, and asked, could you please allow me uh, a chance to move to, to America? Uh, America was a dream of mine. Um, I don't know where it came from, probably all those books that I was reading because there was no sitting around, there was no watching television. Not only was... Did I grow up in the, in the era and um, the area of the world where television was actually shut down at about 11 o'clock at night and uh, actually made that noise? <laughs> and I remember they would uh, play the national anthem and it was shut down. By then, you're already in bed anyway. But every once in a while, I'd try and sneak in and watch. But it was always things like wrestling. We didn't have, um, you know, 24-7 uh, television shows. So most of my entertainment came from reading. And I think it was either from reading or just the fantasy that I had in my head. I had planted a seed that I was going to move to America from a very young age. Well, I graduated uh, high school at the age of 16. And so my parents said, absolutely not. You are not moving to America at this age. Um, so I ended up staying around. I was very creative and um, and my parents did not believe creativity would make a career. And so they, they um, you know, talked me into I needed to do, you know, some kind of either doctor or lawyer. I didn't like anything in science. I liked more of the artsy. So I thought about being a lawyer for probably all five seconds. Of course, to my parents, I was saying, yes, 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 I'll do whatever, whatever it takes. But in my head, I just really loved graphic design and art. Um, and I spent a lot of time creating. Um, and a friend of mine uh, and I would make uh, these paintings and would sell them. And so when my dad said, he jokingly said one day, you, you know, if you want to move to America so badly, you need to find a way to um, get the education paid for and you need to buy your own ticket. He was actually kidding. But I started selling my art and I remember walking up to him and I said, here, is this enough money to go? And I think that's the day he said, if you want to go so badly, it's okay. Um, we'll find a way. And I ended up getting a scholarship and, and moving to, to the States. And those isms I described, that self-will, um, that determination, that respect I had for my father, all uh, mixed in, there was no time for alcohol. Um, alcohol is so readily available growing up. You could buy it at any age. It wasn't exciting. Um, my, my first drink was actually a life lesson. Um, there was no part of me that even craved it. My brother had gotten into a little bit of trouble um, drinking. And I remember thinking, I don't want any part of that. So when I came, uh, part of the reason my, my dad wanted me to come a little later in life is, is um in case I got into any kind of trouble, I, I had a little bit of maturity. But two major things happened. One, I'd never shared with my parents about my molestation. Um, and they ended up actually sending me um, to the care unknowingly of the person who had molested me young. Um, because in my dad's mind, he wanted me to be with someone in case anything happened to be around someone who knew them. He, they needed a bridge. Um, and I remember having so much anxiety and not knowing whether I should tell them or not. Um, as a, I was still a child and I remember thinking, I can't tell them. It's really going to mess the family. So I still need to keep this a secret. And I was so grateful when just a couple of weeks before I moved, um, a, a girl that went to high school with me who also knew that man, they worked together. Um, I found out she was also coming to the same the same city, the same school. And so she and I uh, stuck together. Um, I remember sharing with her what was going on. And it's almost like she took this role of protective, protecting me. Um, so I was able to go through university with no problem, graduated in record time. I barely drank. I barely dated. Um, my, my best friend in, in, uh, in college, she and I would probably share wine cooler every once in a while. Um, I, I liked the effects of it, but I did not like the, the feeling of out of control. It always would mentally take me back to 
when I was taken advantage of. That's where my mind would go. And I didn't like that feeling. Um, so I did not drink anywhere close to alcoholically. If I drank anything, it would be months in between and it was not much. And so in my mind later, when I found out what really it meant to have theology, I could not put two and two together. It took me a while to understand that piece of it because of the way I drank. And actually, I had a little bit of shame associated with my story um, as I was going through my recovery programs because I wasn't hearing my story and um, I wasn't identifying as much um, when I first started this journey. Um, Coming to America, I had a little bit of culture shock. I mean, I remember one day, you know, the British have a, a literal way of looking at everything. And I remember one day we went to Walmart, my roommate and I, and um, we saw Sam's Club. And, you know, we were away from home and we said, we're going to actually go into the club tonight. And we dressed up and neither one of us had a car. We got a taxi and um, dressed up and told the taxi driver the address. We'd watched coming to America. We knew all we needed to do was give him an address. Didn't tell him where we were going. And he pulls up, of course, Sam's Club was closed. Um, and here were two young girls dressed like they're going dancing. Uh, <laughs> and um, and they're, they're at Sam's Club. So I had these coming to America stories of my own. And, um, you know, another story that comes to mind is is um, we went to a grocery store and then they said, would you like cash back? And I remember thinking, wow, they give you cash back for shopping. And um and my roommate and I, we had a shared uh, grocery, you know, incident incident uh, account. And I remember thinking, yeah, why not? Let's get some cash back. Well, it turned out that it was our money, and we overdue our account that day. So <laughs> I remember really waking up, going, I made a decision to move to a totally different country. And I called my dad and he said, this is why I was telling you that you would be in culture shock. But now that you chose this, you're going to, um, to run with it. And, um, and, you know, I have very fond memories of my college days. I have actual memories of my college days because alcohol wasn't a part of them at the time. And very, very, very soon after I graduated, um, I actually met the man I ended up spending almost two decades with and married. Um, and we moved fast. And um, my home mimicked my uh, our home mimicked the home I grew up in in relation to alcohol. We used alcohol for entertaining. Um, people loved visiting with us. I did. I drank so normally, but I loved entertaining more than I enjoyed the drinking and the effects of the alcohol. So I spent more time making sure everybody was okay. And and he was great at um, at you know welcoming folks and ensuring that they had everything they needed and we had every food they wanted. You know, after we got married, it took us about almost five years to have children. So we had plenty of time with just the two of us and he was in the military and um, alcohol was really not part of my story then either. And I remember those days, life was simple. I got uh, my career started a couple months after I graduated. Um, I lived on a budget. I was so good with money because I was I was raised how to be good with money. You know, my career really validated me. Um, and I remember getting in recovery and understanding like where I was seeking, um, you know, and there's nothing wrong with ambition. Um, but I remember I took mine to an extreme uh, and I had a lot of old ideas. That's what I learned. They're called or false beliefs. Um that were generated from my growing up, you know, that later erupted like a volcano. Um, you know, I believed, for example, marriage was supposed to be forever. I thought success was based on material. Um, I thought asking for help was weak. Secrets for me were a way of life, you know, and um, I didn't want to say things to hurt other people. There's also some codependency in my story. And um, I was constantly striving for perfection and almost ridiculed progress. Um, I grew up thinking that feelings were bad and useless, like there was no need to spend time thinking about feelings. Uh, I was constantly like in action and doing something. I felt like if I was still, like I was wasting my time. So those are like major, major um, ideas that ended up like really not serving me later in life. And um, 
And because it was so readily available growing up and there was no like quote unquote age limit and you could buy it whenever you wanted it. And uh, we had a very large family. So I was always exposed to alcohol. And later in life, um, I genuinely didn't see the big deal like of having a glass of wine here and there. Fast forward, um, I remember for me when it it I made a decision. It was it was really creepy because there was nothing happening. Um, I had all these good external things happening uh, in terms of that map print that you know what I believed was the map of life that had been given to me. Those things that I just named a, a few of them. I was worldly successful. I had a husband who loved me, children, a happy home. Um, things were calm. But for some reason, I felt empty and I was ashamed, you know, when I when we were um, dating and married, I, I had my best friend and I was not able to share these thoughts with him because I was almost ashamed of having them. There was something inside me that was seeking for more and I never understood it. Uh, and I remember we were extremely healthy the way we raised our children, like they could not eat things that they couldn't pronounce. You know, to this day, I have a child who does not eat chocolate because I remember telling her, if you can't pronounce it and spell it, you can't eat it. And she used to get so frustrated because she would try to spell chocolate. And and she, she's like, I'm just not going to eat it. And now we can laugh about it. But looking back, it was really a way for me to exert that control that I mentioned. Um, and, and so that fine Saturday is the memory that I have of when I said, I'm going to escape into a faraway land and I'm going to use alcohol to do it. It was nothing happening. My children wanted cereal. Cereal was a no-no in my house because I believed that I brought these children to this world. We need to feed them healthy. And uh, we would actually puree their food and make this made-from-scratch breakfast and um, made with whole grains and healthy fruit and organic vegetables. And um, and my daughter said, we just want cereal. Whenever we go visit with so-and-so, they'd have cereal, mommy. And I would say, can you pronounce everything on the cereal? Can you spell everything? You know, the ingredients on cereal, I can't even pronounce them and I can't. <laughs> um, but here I was expecting, I believe at the time it was like a four and five-year-old um, to know that. And and we lived, I love convenience, so I try and live in places that, um, you know, I love my my space, but I also like to know that there's civilization close by. And we lived close to a grocery store, and we actually walked. I remember we walked to the grocery store, and that day, I always had wine for entertaining others. On that day, I remember I picked a, a bottle of wine that looked so fancy, um, and it was, it was a good amount proof. I remember that because I'd been... I'd learned about good wines and wine tastings. And um, and I came home and I'm, I remember it was early in the morning. I mean, not early, but it was, it was I think, 8.30, 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Um, and I remember thinking, this is not right. Like, why do I want to pour wine? Because normally I drank, um, you know, out and, and my husband could see me doing it. But on that specific day, I remember my children wanted this thing and I was trying to control their lives so badly. And yet I, I'm, I'm dying at work. I'm so busy with work. It's, it's not a, it's not a bad death. It's just, I'm busy, which is a good thing. And, um, I'm well regarded, but I just wanted an escape. And I poured this one. Then I said, Oh no, 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 this is so weird. I'm going to turn it into breakfast. So I poured orange juice. So I made a mimosa. And I had this, you know, wine mimosa. It wasn't even champagne. And um, and I drank it. And my children wanted to watch cartoons. And I used to, we, I should say, used to um, really be cognizant about how much time they spent with electronics. But on that day, after that sip and second sip and third sip, I escaped. And I genuinely don't even know how long they watched it. Um, and, you know, I felt so weird about that weird decision that the first thing I did is I slowly started hiding the wine and I became a very closeted drinker. 
uh, bottles would literally gather dust on the um, kitchen countertops. And that girl, you know, the inner child in me who was not nursed, who was keeping that secret. And I'm telling, once again, I'm sharing this from a different perspective, literally was like begging to come out. It's like, I just wanted to keep the secret to myself. Um, And it's perspective now, but I didn't understand it then. I actually got a high in knowing that I'm hiding this substance from, from my family. But I found out later, like there is, there's no way to hide drinking alcohol. Um, Anyway, I, um, I remember my mother didn't drink. The women that I knew didn't drink. Um, Alcohol, like I mentioned, was acceptable, but alcoholism was not. I wasn't calling myself that, but I remember thinking the way I'm starting to drink because I would leave work and I would drive. There was a, a convenience store on my way home and I'd buy the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest bottles of wine and take a few of them before I got home just to quote unquote get right sized. Um, my, my children, you know, I remember saying I have boundaries around drinking. Like I wouldn't drive my children, for example, you know, either their dad had taken them home or the nanny had taken them home. Um, and it, it was it was amazing to me how my mind would tell me that it's okay to do this, that I'm not hurting anybody. Uh, but the truth is, I slowly stopped being present. Um, I didn't realize it. And when I thought um, that I was starting to have a problem, I would stop. And I didn't want to have this impact to my career. So I did not drink during the week. Um, but eventually I started obsessing about the drinking in between the drinking. And I'm using the word now, but at the time I didn't know what it was. And I had this escape thought. So I would escape to like over-exercising or over-controlling the amount of food that I ate. Um, And I would have these goals in between the drinking, like I'm going to have like the lowest percent body fat and I would hire a personal trainer. It was just the weirdest way looking back. It was what's described as insanity, but at the time I didn't understand it. Um, So I didn't fall in love with alcohol when I first drank it, but I believe as I have fallen in love with the escape, Um, not so much the taste, but the escape and the secret keeping, it became my lover. Um, And I remember when I ended up in rehab um, later I wrote a letter, a love letter to alcohol. And and I remember really tuning in because I could talk to it. I was a blackout drinker. I wouldn't forget what I did and and alcohol would forgive me because the next day I'd be okay drinking again. Um, So that fear of disappointing my dad, my dad had passed away. This was about, um, he passed away when when I was pregnant with my my second child. So this was a few years later. So that was even like a far, like I wasn't even thinking about that anymore. Um, those thoughts that I had as a child of, of inadequacy were not really uh, a part of me in that moment when I was escaping. You know, I, I was no longer worried about the loss of control that I remember when I first had my my first drink with with my father and my grandfather teaching me this life lesson of you lose control when you drink. But when I started escaping, that didn't matter anymore. Um, I had the imposter syndrome really heightened and I didn't know that's what was happening. Um, My first level of awareness was really when I started realizing that I'm really working hard to hide this. I was blackout, so sometimes I would wake up like in a sweat, wondering, where's the bottle? Um, But I would justify my behavior, especially because if I didn't have memory of it, I'd tell myself it didn't happen. Then I started this whole thing of trying to control it. It was like, it was interesting looking back at how much I worked hard. Like, I remember telling myself, it's definitely the brunt liquor that gets me in trouble. And so I would not drink brown liquor anymore. But I'm really, my drug of choice, um, which is another thing that kept me sick a long time, is actually wine. Like, 
I didn't venture too far off from wine. I would every once in a blue moon pick up like like vodka, um, but I didn't like it unless I mixed it and then I would have a blackout. Then I would have no memory of it. So I would do it few and far between. My husband, who I believed at the beginning had no clue except, you know, we were in between moving to Atlanta. We used to live in Florida. We're in between uh, moving to Atlanta. And um, I think that's the first time he got a glimpse that there was something wrong. His company had moved him here. My company had graciously agreed to give me a spousal transfer. And they had given me a go-away party at a restaurant that served two for one. And I was just at the beginning of this insane controlling, hiding, not telling anybody. My mom was visiting uh, from Kenya to help me with the move so that I'm, I'm not as concerned about, you know, the children and, and their sleep schedules and all that stuff so that we can keep, you know, things under control as the movers are coming and I'm still going to work. And she, she, uh, cause I had a fear of losing my job. I didn't want to take any time off. It was the recession. I wanted to make sure I was present. And my mom said, I'll just come help you. And she came and she stayed with us for a long time. And they took me to this restaurant and I remember I hadn't been drinking because uh, I wanted to be my best behavior for several months prior to that. And um, a, a co-worker said, I said, no, I don't want to drink. And the co-worker said, um, you know, it's okay. I'll, I'll have your second one if you just have one. And I remember sipping it because I had this image um, issue. Like I wanted you to see me a different way than what was uh, happening in my closet. And, and so I drank like that one and I sipped it. I didn't even finish the whole thing. And the obsession before I even left that parking lot uh, and I'm smiling at the pictures. I was actually looking at the pictures the other day. I'm smiling at the pictures and at my coworkers who I love dearly and wanted to just tell them, I really, I don't think it's a good idea to drink. That's what my gut was telling me. Uh, but I was also a very good people pleaser. And why not? It's just going to be one anyway. But as soon as I got in that car, I went to the closest grocery store, picked up the biggest bottle of wine they had, started walking away and something pulled me back to pick up a second one. And that night, um, my mom put the kids to bed. She went to bed. I'd reached the point where I didn't even care about pouring it into a glass. And I was still downstairs. And I was so sad that I was moving. I'd found my tribe where I lived. I had a community. You know, I was raising my children. I had that stability I was seeking as a child. And yet we're moving. I blacked out and I got behind the wheel. And um, I had two totally different shoes. Like I had a six inch heel and a, and a four inch heel. Now keep in mind, um, I'm also fairly tall. And so I couldn't walk a straight line to save my life. I didn't think there was anything like, I didn't put on my shoes initially, but I wanted to go to a club and dance. My husband was not there. Um, and I was in a blackout going to the club. And of course, what do they tell me? This woman that's limping and thinking she is sexy, you know, like that's not cute. And so they told me absolutely not. And so I got in my car and I decided to do a memory lane and I'm in a blackout and I drive to where our journey started when it was in the military. And I literally drove through the barricades of a military base in a blackout. He was called half asleep. I don't know what time it was. I know it was way after midnight, but before 4 a.m., and he got in that car and drove six hours um, to come uh, bail me out of jail. And yeah, here's my mother thinking, oh, she's just downstairs. Let me go check on her. And the daughter wasn't there. And I remember that whole thing was the first time I went to my old higher power called Such Engine Google. And I looked up alcohol, drinking too much. I did this search um, and he came back and told me that I was an alcoholic and I was shocked. As I ran downstairs, restarted my computer, made sure there were no cookies and took the test again. And this time the test came back and said I wasn't. Well, what I did was I lied and I've learned that one of the first things I need to do to remain not just sober, but free is to be honest. And I didn't know how to do that. So 
when it said I was an alcoholic, I kept sipping my wine. And but I remember that's when the seed got planted that there can you can get help if you want it. And I didn't think much of it. We were moving anyway, so geographical will will change everything. I forgot that I'd go everywhere I am, and so I moved to Atlanta with all this mind stuff and still not feeling like I was enough and still this imposter syndrome. And my company had created this awesome opportunity, brand new opportunity, very, very close to my dream job that I had been nurturing and putting together for over a decade. Chasing that success kept me away from the drink, just like fear of the drink kept me before. So I started having this tug of war between alcohol and I, but I kept suffering both external and internal consequences, like complete loss of peace of mind, was constantly seeking connection and thinking it was in this bottle that it really wasn't in. And avoiding reality, um, I was really like numbing that inner child. Finally, through the help of my therapist, because I did seek therapy, I did lose my career after almost 16 years hadn't been drinking for a while. And next thing I know, I'm back into the throes and not understanding it. This period of time that I'm describing is less about five years or less. And even suffered a stroke, um, lost the ability to speak for five whole days. And yet, because I had, it was actually my birthday. And I remember not telling anybody the symptoms I was having because I was afraid that they would take my blood and know that I had been drinking. So when it says that we we we, ser- we seek this to death, I understand that statement today because I was so willing to keep going. Whenever a net was thrown in front of me, like a soft landing, I would keep digging. And I found out later that a bottom is when I choose to stop digging. My therapist offered me a way out. and um, And I remember he had said it many, 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 many times. And I had ignored it many, many, many times. He had started opening up Pandora's box with all these things that I'm mentioning to you. And eventually I found out that I was so unable to face my reality that every time he was digging a little deeper, I was finding myself numbing a a lot more because alcohol used to be my solution. I found a way out through recovery program and I'm I'm living this complete uh, rebuild of a life. Today... I'm not ashamed. You know, I can I can sit here and share my story with you. Those feelings of shame and not being seen and heard that I used to have as that child, you know, I'm getting to nurture that inner child um, in, in nature. I spent a lot of time in nature, like that connection I was seeking. Now I have it, you know, and initially it was complete abstinence, but it actually became a vow to sobriety and digging a little bit deeper um, and realizing that not only do I put one thing down, that if I'm truly an addict, that my mind will find a way to be under the influence of even people, places and things or, you know, uh, cross addiction or um, watching Netflix until Netflix says, are you still here? You know, I can find myself still seeking that escape you know, in in other things other than being able to look at myself. But today I have that built-in awareness. My sobriety has been like really being lifed. You know, the the, the marriage I described ended up actually ending while I was sober. And me, not just not picking up a mind-altering substance, but also being peaceful in the process. I don't have to, to pick up a drink for my life to actually like have no meaning or for my life to still like not be quote unquote manageable to me. But it's so amazing how just by taking that vow after being led by my therapist to, I call it the country club as a joke. It's really rehab and there's nothing close to it. It's a very humbling uh, place that is definitely not close to like a massage and spa and California style uh, rehab. And I say that not to classify um, California, but, you know, it was not a celebrity place. It was it was um, a very humble place. And it was one bed and it was in the mental asylum. And I remember getting up and really exam- examining how I got there and um, 
had a tough time initially accepting that I could get help. But eventually I found this in the journey of traveling that I could be completely honest and really share where I was, that there were other people who could relate to where I was. And because I had remained silent for so long, um, that girl, you know, who was nine years old and found solace in, in going inside, still found herself wanting to do the same thing um, when I started my recovery journey. But I found that if I don't speak up and share my truth, no matter what that truth is, that I will find that I, I'm going to pick up another something to numb me. I mentioned at the beginning of this that I said yes to my purpose. And um, and so today, my story actually ended up being the philosophy of serving others and helping individuals who are ready to face the reality of their traumas and their compulsive um, behavior and or addiction. Sometimes it leads to that. And, and also their families, like helping them understand how to tap into the root. You know, it's one thing to shake a tree. And I'm a, I'm a friend to the therapist. I don't claim to be an expert, but I do claim to use that intuitive. I mentioned I was very highly intuitive as a child. And now it's turning out to be actual purpose. Like that is my innate way that I was created. And it's a gift that I get to give others. You know, a friend of mine uh, took me for an awesome treat today. And we were at a store and and um, because of what's going on in the world, the stores are literally giving things away. And, and um, one of the one of the magnets that they have for security reasons was not taken out of one of the garments. Um, and so we were called back in. And when we got called back in, um, this lady, she's, me and my friend, we were laughing. We were so free. And uh, she said, what are you guys to each other? And, uh, and my friend said, we're, we're friends, we're sisters, you know, but we look nothing alike uh, externally where people usually will go, wait, are they, what's going on? Is this another, this is us episode? Finally, she says, you know, I'm so glad I got to meet you guys today because because this it's sometimes the connection is so deep. And I said, yeah, everything in life will serve its purpose. Even a magnet that was left on a piece of clothing that brought me back to meet this angel to really remind me that I'm a walking, not only am I a walking miracle, but in a couple hours, I'd be speaking to, to you sharing my story. And, and it's such a such an awesome way to reflect back at a journey that is so redeeming and it's like it's like being getting a second chance in life like being reborn and really being able to say wait a minute why was i put on this earth for and i find so much joy in helping others find their way out of that shame base, and that's part of why I resonated with Eugene is, is that looking back at how um, addiction is looked at by the world, when the truth is, I really genuinely did not know how deep this issue was until I started the journey. And initially I thought it would be like Cinderella, where if I put down the the wine and the alcohol of any form or any mind-altering substance that my life would piece together. But for me, I ended up getting lifed. You know, I went through a divorce. Um, you know, my children and I spent about nine months living with a friend in the process, two miles away from a home that, that we owned. And yet in that process, I was going through pain, but I was not suffering. I found so much solace in documenting this journey and tapping the shoulder of another person who usually is divinely sent and say, it's going to be okay. You know, there's, there's hope in numbers and there's hope in, in a community and that today I can carry that hope to anybody who hears my voice and think that they resonate with any part of my story. And of course, as we were sharing in our 40 minute um, technical time, <laughs> your, your story, you can't tell all of it in, um, in a certain amount of time, but we can sure 
at least have a message that we can put out. And for me, it is, I used to speak fluent Vietnamese, I called it. You know, I used to have this victim mentality. And what I'm sharing with you today from a bird's eye view is I'm not a victim to my past. Um, it's actually become my biggest treasure because the opportunity to learn is beautiful. Um, having been raised by educators, I understand now why they said education is an investment. Um, I understand the importance of hearing other people's voices, whether it's through voice or reading or writing and sharing, because the, the truth is, I don't know how long that I'm on this earth for, but I want to do something while I'm here. And if this is what it took for me to get here, I'm okay with that today. Well, you are a bright light, let me tell you. I, I'm i just so surprised when you shared your awareness as a child, remembering feeling jealousy for a younger sibling. That is obviously a gift you have of incredible self-awareness. And you mentioned it a few other times, you know, remembering the moment where your kids wanted cereal and you decided to escape using alcohol. Your sensitivity isn't just to others, it's to yourself. I'm wondering how that affects you as a person in recovery when you're in sharing circles with others or when you're helping someone who's struggling. Do you find that you feel their pain, that it easily overwhelms you? Or have you learned ways to manage the intake of those emotions so that you don't feel like you need to numb now? Oh, what a beautiful question. Um, so a couple of days ago, you know, there are a lot of changes going on in the world. And one of my daughters came to speak to me. She was sitting across from me. Actually, she was sitting next to me. And um, she she got a little emotional. And, you know, her sister didn't understand. It gave me an opportunity to literally hug her and tell her, it's okay to feel that way. Because when I was her age and I felt what she was feeling, I could so relate to where she was coming from. I didn't know what it was, but today I get to know that I was, I'm very empathetic. So as an empath, I do feel people's emotions. I do feel people's energy. I went to a, a, a circle of women, awesome women. As, I, as soon as I walked up to them, Jean, I felt their energy and, and it wasn't a pleasant like, oh, I can't wait. You know, we're not hugging because we're social distancing right now, but it wasn't the, I can't wait to circle up. It was more like, it completely drained me and took, it, it took me aback. And right there for me, what, I, what I've had to learn is that because this is how I'm built, there are certain non-negotiables in my life that people get to benefit from the overflow. And if I don't have an overflow, I have to be very careful not to give. It's the honoring my true self. And, and because I'm also recovering from that codependency, I learned like for me, I start my day early and I connect to the things that I love. Some of the things that I mentioned, um, like my time to myself and um, my meditation, you know, um, I do love to pray because today prayer for me is like a conversation. And, um, and then I love to listen and, you know, it, it's in recovery that I actually learned that silent and listen have the exact same letters. And so being able to be true to my gut and, and, and my gut, if I am not in good self-care mode, like, for example, if I'm in that circle of women and I'm hungry, I'm not present because I'm focusing on my feelings of, of anger and I get really short um, and sometimes I have to excuse myself. But if I do take care of my innate needs and most of the big chunk I like to take care of before anybody else is involved. And because I do live with my daughters, um, I like to get up early and take care of like my exercising, my quiet time, my writing, um, my creating. I like to do those things really early. So that's how I have learned to tune in to who I am. And I've also learned that I don't always have to have an answer. It's okay to pause. And it doesn't have to be like a five second pause. I enjoy processing a lot, you know, and 
arriving at those things you just mentioned didn't take a day. You know, I'm not going to sit here and, and be dishonest because then I'm heading to something to alter alter how I feel because, oh my gosh, I didn't tell Jean the truth. What I have really learned, uh, Jean, is, is they say to their own self, be true. And that inner child I used to quiet all the time, she's an empathetic really quiet child, but has this calling that's extremely extroverted. And so because of that, I take time for me and feed my soul. And if I'm not fully fed and I still have a commitment, I meet that commitment, but I share where I am. So like I was on my coaching call yesterday and, um, and I, I immediately, somebody asked me a question. I said, you're going to probably feel an energy from me because people are so used to me having this big personality. And I said, you're probably going to feel a different energy, but it's because I'm a little bit drained today. So I speak my truth instead of my old behavior, which was, I don't feel right. I'm just not going to go. I used to think I was isolating, but now I'm, I'm finding out that it's because I hadn't connected the dots that I'm connecting with you right now. Um, I had not connected those dots yet. And that's okay. It's okay because today I can speak more clearly because it took, I took time to do everything else and then realize what I would do is justify why I was, I was numbing or, you know, I, I deserved it. For example, the truth was it's because I wasn't doing what uh, one of my mentors likes to call radical self-care. So I have to remain in that mode and I'm very, very imperfect at it. Like right now I'm, I'm going through, um, going back and going, wait, I was exercising almost every day, but I kind of ate a little too late uh, for too many days. And I'm not built uh, with the type of, of body that, that has a very fast metabolism. You know what I mean? So I'm going, wait, why am I so tired in the morning? It's because I didn't do those things um, that I probably needed to do, but that's okay. I don't get to shame myself today. I walk this journey owning it. You mentioned something and I, I wrote down the words introvert and codependence because you got me thinking about myself in how I also love a lot of alone time and a lot of quiet time, but I also need a lot of face time with people. I get my energy from other people. And it just kind of struck me that, you know, as those of us who know that we are sometimes we fall into that pattern of codependency or of being other centered, you know, really noticing how others feel and how they feel towards us. We need other people then to tell us who we are. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, something happened and you easily pretended it didn't because you were the only one who knew about it. And I so relate to that. I just felt if I was the only one who knew it didn't happen because I didn't care that I knew. I only care if you knew <laughs> or if other people knew. So it's a real conundrum to be an introvert and a codependent because you kind of, you need people and you need alone time. And I sometimes think that the friction between those two things can be what pushes us towards alcohol to seek comfort from just the discomfort of being us sometimes. Mm -hmm. Another thing you mentioned earlier that I want to ask you to talk about just a little bit before we wrap up our time together. And that is that you you talked about helping people who are seeking comfort through secondary things. So we deal with our alcohol, but then we may find that we are just leaning on another substance or person or a behavior to, to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So how is it that you help people deal with that? How do we know if we're doing it and, and what can we do about it? It's a good question, especially in this environment we're in, you know, in the in the face of the pandemic that's affected so many people in different ways. Because I believe this this is time no matter where what place you are on earth, that it gave you time to be by yourself. Well, it used to be very uncomfortable to be by myself because because I, I mentioned one of my old beliefs was I was always wanting to be doing something. And so cross addiction which is what I'm going to refer to it just to make it easier. It, it ranges. And, and what I found is that what it messed with the most for me is my emotional sobriety. So if I wasn't emotionally sober, it meant that I wasn't really connected to myself. And I, for me personally, my go-to um, addiction when I'm not using a substance 
is my secondary, most brightest one is that codependency. So you cannot live without people. But what I find is that if I'm uncomfortable, all of a sudden I want the people closest to me to do things the way I want them to do it. It's not easy to recognize it because it will mimic itself as though I'm being a responsible citizen. I'm raising, I'm going to use my doors as an example. And that means if you're in my house, you need to do certain things at certain times in a certain way. And I find myself digging a little deeper when I am not happy with what's going on and I'm not willing to address it. So when I was in those moments where I was still not getting that validation I wanted from the sources that I wanted them, for example, in getting another source of income faster, I found myself wanting to be controlling. And because I was documenting my journey and because I was seeing a therapist and because I was in, in, in present in my recovery, I uncovered it's that subtle. It doesn't even have to be the overeating. It could be the electronic addiction. Um, it could be in seeking love in all the wrong places. So I've come to realize that there is a lot of projection that happens for me in the moment. So I, I've learned to catch it by doing a thorough look at where am I really and where am I trying to go and what am I not willing to face? And because those questions are not answered in one sitting, um, that it's okay for me to say, not now. Or to say, I don't know. You know, it's funny because one of my go-tos is, um, and my justification is like, I love popcorn and I'll eat the whole bag. It's not healthy, but I'll tell myself, it's just a handful of corn that was popped. So really what I'm eating is a handful of corn. That's the way I'll justify it. But it's not, it still doesn't make it any more healthy just because it's a small bunch that was popped because they tell you what the servings are recommended to be. So I treat it, the best way to describe it, Jean, is I treat it like um, an allergist. When I started my recovery journey, I just said, let me kind of like take a step back from the things that I know, like I was over-exercising, for example, and I took a step back and I said, what is my motive? What what is What is my true motive? If my true motive was to go do a hit workout and think that I'm going to walk out of that workout looking a different way, and that's actually used to happen to me, then that's not reality. Instead of trying to get to point Z, I need to go from point A to B and then B to C. But if I'm not able to go from A to B, let's examine why. And typically for me, I found it's a fear, fear, control, or lack thereof, lack thereof of control. Like, like for me, when I'm not the one in 100% control, I used to find myself extremely uncomfortable. You and I both experienced that before our recording where we had things happen where we could not control them, but we ended up facing it, taking a deep breath, and here we are. And it's, you know, you know what I mean? Like be, bring myself back into that moment because it's not a one and done there is no cookie cutter answer. It has to be an individual look at, but it's a very subtle beginning um, of what am I running away from? What am I not facing? Because typically it leads you to picking up something else to either validate you or something you can control or something that you can escape to or from. It's that pain pleasure equation, running away from pain running toward pleasure. Hmm. I feel like recovery has taught me to be curious about myself. As you said, when, when we're feeling something, to be curious about what's underneath it. So if I'm craving chocolate or comfort in any form, what is making me uncomfortable that's calling for that comfort? So I love your answer. I love, I love the call to be curious towards ourselves. Yeah. One last thing for you before you go. If someone is struggling today and is wondering if recovery is for them, what do you say to someone who is maybe afraid to get started or afraid to move forward, who's feeling stuck? Do you have any words of encouragement for that listener today? Absolutely. Um, there is nothing wrong with, I call it questioning, but there's everything on the other side 
of that, which is a solution, I would tell him or her that just get started. Just get started. If there is no right or wrong way to take this journey, but every journey begins with a first step. So just take one inch toward that direction where you feel led to and see what happens. Like you said, be curious. And that is what I'm learning in this process. Wanja, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your story. It's been great getting to know you. It's been great getting to know you as well. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed Wanda's story and would like to get in touch with her, you can send an email to thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will make sure that Wanda gets it. Also, uh, check the show notes for this episode because I will put a link in there for Wanda's website if you wanted to have a look at that as well. That's all for this week, everyone. Take good care. Own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame. Strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free Just want to be free